Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. As back-to-school season has arrived and is underway across the Northern Hemisphere, our conversation today will outline for you the coursework and the focuses of the markets over the next several months. Joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome back to Top of the Morning, Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So, Jason, great to have you back here on Top of the Morning. Uh, thank you for joining us and looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be here for, I guess, our first, maybe official one for the fall. I'm not sure that's today or tomorrow, but it's, it's starting right now. Yep, and if you go outside, at least up here in the Northeast, you do have that fall chill in the air. So the fall has definitely arrived. And to that point, Jason, I know in the latest House View, the monthly letter, uh, which is titled Back to School, it does analogize the months ahead as a school semester, so to speak, where focuses will be on topics such as biology, politics, economics, business studies, ecology, and even contemporary history. So a sizable course load, to say the least. Although I'm curious, Jason, how how does this all translate to what investors will be focused on and what could influence market behavior over the next few months? Well, it is a, a sizable course load, so I'm not going to be able to kind of address all the, the topics in detail right now. And if you look at the price action this morning, it sounds like we're already getting a bit of a pop quiz in terms of like what really matters. Because the, the point of these different topics is to try and address in different ways the key sort of market stories and dynamics that have been relevant for markets for pretty much all of this year, but also you know recently and kind of going forward. And from whether that's kind of biology, that's, you know, kind of talking about the pandemic and the COVID situation, you know, politics is to, you know, on the U.S. side, the fiscal negotiations that are taking place, you know, economics is the Fed that's going to meet this week and what they're going to do, uh, you know, the implications for, for business studies is, you know, as we've seen kind of supply side constraints, like what does it mean for corporate earnings, especially as we head into the third quarter earnings season starting in, in a few weeks in October. So, these are all kind of, you know, relevant, you know, in terms of like, what is the overall view? And so we just, you know, think about a few of them. You know, first and foremost is, you know, the, you know, the pandemic itself, you know, and how much that is either weighing on activity, will continue to weigh on activity, is it going to get better or worse? You know, what we've seen throughout really the past, you know, year is a gradual sort of improvement, but not without fits and starts where there's been things that have signs of positive development and a bit of a pullback. What we saw certainly in the case of the summer was, uh, you know, rising Delta cases, which have spawned fears of implications for economic activity. We've seen some slowdown in some of the data. So the key question then is, is you know, will this get better or worse? And what is the outlook for, for the pandemic itself? Uh, and ultimately, I think, you know, we remain relatively comfortable with that, the trend of things getting you know, generally better. Uh, and we've already seen that just in, in the recently, the number of COVID cases on a daily basis in the U.S. has certainly plateaued. And it's come down a little bit from its highs from about two weeks ago. The same thing with hospitalizations uh, and past waves would suggest this trend should continue, at least in the coming weeks. Globally, it's the same story that, you know, the number of cases kind of peaked out in August and now they've declined, you know, probably more significantly than they've declined in the U.S., you know, but generally that, that's the direction. Uh, you know, whether there's a possibility for another wave this fall as we get into colder weather, that, that still remains a risk. But potentially offsetting that is, you know, vaccination rates continue to move higher, you know, in the U.S. slowly, but uh, globally, there are now 30 million shots per day, uh, and around 30% of the global population is fully vaccinated. So if you just continue that pace of 30 million shots a day, that percentage of the population globally that's been covered, that's going to continue to tick higher by roughly, you know, about you know, 10 percentage points, you know, almost every four to six weeks. 
so by the, the end of this year, at least you know, half the global population could be fully vaccinated, which is, you know, as we've seen, you know, vaccinations certainly have a benefit of kind of curtailing some of the, you know, the worst of developments. So even as we move further into winter, vaccinations hopefully can sort of be a bit of a wall to prevent, you know, the worst situations, which again is a kind of a key consideration for, for the overall economic outlook. You switch into the U.S. On the, on the policy side, first with U.S. politics, a lot of attention on D.C. right now with negotiations on a budget reconciliation deal. Last week on last Monday, the House Ways and Means Committee uh, kind of released essentially its markup of the budget resolution. And it actually had details in terms of the tax increases that effectively the committee is willing to support, which included, you know, raising the corporate tax rate from, you know, 20, 21% to 26 and a half, capital gains from 20 to 25, and the top marginal tax rate, uh, you know, uh, back up to 39.5%. Uh, much of this was kind of expected. It's sort of what we expected, um, you know, and it's in line with the market expected, which is why it was a little bit of a, in some way, non-event for the markets because it's consistent with what's expected. Uh, these negotiations will continue really for the next month or two. Um, it's likely that to be, well, we think we'll get some sort of deal done, but not nearly to the magnitude of the three and a half trillion that's been kind of asked for probably something closer to, to $2 billion, um, and the tax increases along the lines of what I've just outlined. So I could, you know, most of it is paid for, but, but not entirely. In the very near term, I think the focus is going to be more tied to the debt ceiling, uh, which has to be raised or suspended. Uh, otherwise, the government essentially runs out of money by roughly mid to late October. Also, at the end of this month is the end of the fiscal year, so we need a new budget. So we're going to see right up until basically next Thursday, probably midnight potentially, you know, negotiations taking place to avoid the government shutdown to raise the debt ceiling. You know, Republicans have been, you know, said we're not going to sort of compromise anything that would you know, be tied to, you know, increasing taxes. So ultimately it's probably going to fall on the Democrats to do something. It will create a lot of headline risk, a lot of noise, but ultimately something is likely to you know, be passed and sort of will move to is more of a, you know, not a major market moving event. I think that that applies to the fiscal situation overall. More relevant is the Fed meeting you know, this week uh, with a lot of focus on what the Fed might announce in terms of tapering plans. Uh, it's likely that they will only give guidance that provided you know, the recovery continues, then we're ready to start tapering. And so that a formal announcement may occur in November, beginning in December or January. So I think that, that timing isn't up in the air. It's more a question about uh, you know, what kind of guidance they might give for, for when they could raise rates uh, on Wednesday through their dot plot or other kind of communications. There's a little bit of a risk the market's concerned with they're going to end up being sort of hawkish on the rate front. Um, so as, as we get to that risk event, that could again be something that the market's kind of alleviated on. Um, and you're just thinking about like how does it all play in terms of what does it mean for the equity market outlook? Concerns about the COVID virus, about impacting supply chains, you know, disruptions to the global economy. That's certainly been also front center. And one of the reasons why people are a little bit more concerned about the equity outlook, at least in the very near term, uh, but much of this is already anticipated. You could say it's already kind of priced into the markets. Uh, and companies, you know, by and large have good pricing power. Revenue growth is very strong. Uh, so much of the thing is will be, you know, a lot of, again, more kind of headline news versus what is the actual impact on earnings. It's likely to be you know, you're narrowly targeted to a handful of companies that are more skilled, tied to the global supply chain, including companies like materials or industrials. Um, so these are some of the stories kind of covered in the, the, uh, in the messaging in that letter, I think all of it is just kind of giving more details in terms of like why we still remain relatively confident in the overall. Like if we look at a kind of more of a six-month horizon, 
And even though in very near term, there's definitely some event risks that investors have to pay close attention to. Jason, thank you for taking a few moments there to break that all down for us. Clearly, no shortage of focuses. And I know on our prior House View conversation here on top of the morning, we did learn about the chief investment office's economic outlook. Growth will remain high in the coming quarters. Can you remind us of the factors that support that view? Well, there's been some concern about you know, growth slowing because we saw definitely data in August that moderated you know, consumer spending seemed to be impacted by the rise in Delta variant. So the strength of consumption that you know, economists were forecasting didn't materialize. As a result, starting the end of August or, or early September, economists started downgrade quite significantly their, their third quarter growth forecasts from pretty lofty levels to now something approaching more like the 2 to 3%. But what we're seeing, though, even more recently, just even in the last week, some of the, the data suggests that that slowdown in growth has probably bottomed, uh, and we're likely to see a bit of a reacceleration as we move into the rest of the year. So, for example, retail sales, you know, uh, exceeding expectations. Uh, this is August retail sales. That was reported last week. At the same time, some of the regional federal reserve banks, you know, including the, you know, the Philly Fed and also the New York State Empire Manufacturing Index, kind of surprised the upside. So I think a lot of negative news is out there. Some of the data is now suggesting that maybe it's perhaps gone uh, a little too to the negative side. You know, the overall story is that consumers still have a lot of money. They have a lot of built-up savings over the past year and a half. The labor market is very strong. You know, we're at a far uh, excess of any prior record in terms of job openings. Companies are reporting difficulties hiring. So we're seeing a very strong labor market. So we're likely to see, you know, job growth be very solid through the rest of this year, which means good income growth. And that's going to support consumer spending. So all that suggests that the overall fundamentals for the economy are still you know, quite solid. Uh, I think a lot of this negative news has already been sort of reflected in the market performance in the past few weeks across different sectors, across different styles. And even sort of we've seen you know, today um, you know, a bit of the pullback. It just reflects the markets being jittery in terms of like, the resiliency of kind of U.S. and global growth. I think that will prove to be actually you know, you know, relatively robust as we get further into the fourth quarter. Jason, with respect to the potential risks that might disrupt the pacing, the trajectory of the recovery, I know you might have alluded to a few in particular a few moments ago. Uh, Top of mind, what are you watching for and how on track would you say is the recovery here in the U.S. relative to other parts of the developed and emerging world today? Well, there are a number of potential risks, and a lot of them are actually very near term, like meaning the next four to six weeks, either materialize in some way or they're going to abate. Uh, that starts this week with the Fed, the Fed meeting that will conclude on Wednesday. You know, the concern could be that, in this case, the Fed is a little bit too hawkish uh, in terms of really more for the rate forecast, because whether they announce tapering, give God on tapering, we know it's going to begin later this year, early next year. I think that there's you know, very little uncertainty on that. It's more about when they would start raising rates. So right now they're projecting, um, you know, two rate hikes in 2023. There is some concern that maybe they could actually start to pull one of those hikes into 2022. That could happen by the end of next year or have as many as like four hikes in 2023. That's not what the market's expecting, but the fear is that that happens. That could again be sort of something similar to what happened in June as the Fed is being too hawkish. Um, it's unlikely it's going to happen. I think the Fed and, and Jay Powell and his press conference would probably push back against, you know, those kind of views. But that remains a risk, you know, near term. And if we get through it, that's one thing off the table. Uh, on the fiscal side, you know, the, the fiscal negotiations, especially as the house tied to the debt plane, I think is the very near term issue. And again, the clock is ticking there because the, the end of the fiscal year is next Thursday, December 30th. 
The government right now is using extraordinary measures to fund the Treasury, which are likely to run out by mid-late October. So within the next you know, roughly four to six weeks, the debt ceiling has to be resolved. You know, this has happened at least a couple of times uh, in the past decade, and we always kind of come to the brink and then something is resolved. The question is how it will be resolved and how, you know, how bad things might get before it happens. Uh, but eventually we do think it will, and once we do, then that risk is taken off the table. Um, I think another concern just remains the COVID cases, you know, as we move into the fall and the cold weather, and you mentioned in the, in the case, it's now for a little bit in mornings, kind of crisp like fall, people spend more time indoors. We know from last winter the cases rose in the autumn and into the winter. Could the same situation happen again despite the high vaccination rates? Um, and then the final thing is, and it's the cause of what we saw this morning, is a situation in China with a big property developer. Uh, it's the biggest or the second biggest property developer in China. Uh, they are likely to default on some of their debt payments this week, and they have $300 billion of, of total debt outstanding. So the concern is that if they do default, given how large they are, could this have a knock-on or systemic effect to other property developers, investors, financial institutions in China, and therefore could that then spill over to you know, other parts of the world. And we're seeing significant down moves this morning in equity markets in Asia, but also in Europe. Uh, not in China because the markets are closed, which is probably exacerbating the situation. Uh, if the markets aren't open, there's no liquidity, it just kind of you know, doesn't allow for proper kind of price discovery. Ultimately, the situation you know, should lead be resolved through restructuring, uh, policymakers in China have ample fiscal monetary policy to be able to kind of step in and prevent broader kind of slowdown. Uh, they're very kind of clear on their desire to support, you know, kind of income quality on the, you know, this common sort of prosperity mandate that they've announced really recently. So it's unlikely they want to let the situation get too far, especially after the evidence showed last week of a real kind of slowdown in growth throughout the summer. So it's likely, or it's quite possible, we could see additional you know, policy stimulus in the next in a couple of weeks to offset some of the strains created by this. So again, near-term headline risk, but ultimately it could be resolved in a way that's positive, you know, in the next few weeks. So I think the next three or four weeks could lead to a lot of kind of choppiness and volatility. Uh, but once we get to these things, it should take off a lot of the risk that we have for the rest of this year. With respect to those near-term risk considerations, near-term volatility, it sounds like there's potential for that, though you also outlined for us expectations for strong economic growth coupled with further upside for global equities. That's the view of the Chief Investment Office. With all of that in mind, Jason, can you break out for us your current asset allocation recommendations? Well, when we updated the House you know, publication last week, we maintained our overall kind of preference for equities, kind of it's a, a pro-risk stance, uh, favoring, you mean, the kind of overweighting equities relative to the benchmark portfolio versus fixed income, and within that, favoring kind of global recovery plays. Like, you know, broadly speaking, the asset classes, that would be most sensitive to a strong kind of, you know, economic recovery globally. So that includes some cyclical stocks, you know, in, in sector-wise, you know, financials, energy, discretionary, versus, you know, underwriting some defensive sectors like utilities and staples, favoring value stocks that tend to benefit most when kind of global growth is strong, uh, you know, mid-cap equities, which are, again, a little more economically sensitive to the cycle and sort of a good recovery. You know, Japan has, has bounced back very strongly in the past 10 days. That's a, that's a region we like in developed markets, uh, again, sort of benefiting from the global recovery, but more there kind of a domestic politics with potential stronger fiscal stimulus. Commodities as a play of strong recovery and commodity prices, at least in the energy sector, have, have been rising quite significantly, uh, you know, up, up of late. So we think that will continue. Uh, now in the next, again, month or so, 
some of the, these headline risks I talk about, this will lead to some volatility, but we think each of them ultimately won't materialize beyond sort of tail risks. And once we get through it, then we have a situation where we have global growth that's kind of reaccelerating. Some of the tail risks need taken off the table is through year-end uh, rates that are likely to rise at that point in time, which should favor some of the value sectors, including financials, you know, favoring the uh, new Japanese equities, and being a negative headwind to some of the high-growth stocks that also actually benefit from, from low rates. Uh, another factor is that I think investors have been sort of concerned about a September pullback. They've been a little bit more cautious in terms of positioning, you know, buying downside protection. Uh, they're not being caught surprised by the fact that we're getting a bit of a pullback, you know, potentially today and this week. Uh, where they are not really positioned for, though, is ultimately a resumption when these risks pass of kind of cyclical stocks, value stocks outperforming for rates going higher. So we think that as that materializes, as that macro environment materializes in the fourth quarter, investors are going to have to kind of chase that rally coming to year end. And we're also seeing, even like last week, uh, investors who are kind of buying the dip. You know, anytime there's a bit of a sell-off, people are willing to kind of come in and step in and buy. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out this week after the, these news about Evergrande. But there's still a lot of kind of cash on the sidelines that could be put to work. Um, and therefore, that's why we think ultimately kind of any pullback is not going to be overly deep or or that long. Uh, and it's a, it's a catalyst for also for, for equities and risk assets and cyclical trade ultimately kind of continuing uh, as we move into the year end. And so that's how we're recommending investors kind of be positioned for that. Look through a near-term uncertainty, think about the fundamental story for the next three to six months, and that should kind of play out to be, again, a positive story for risk assets. Uh, I'll give you those tied to the global recovery. Jason, very productive conversation with the clarity on those near to medium term focuses, outlining those risk considerations, how it all translates to CIO's economic and market outlook, and of course, how to position accordingly, plus some timely commentary as well on what's driving the activity in overseas markets we've been witnessing and why the market's futures here in the U.S. are responding the way they are. So a very helpful conversation, Jason. I wish you a nice week ahead and we'll look forward to picking back up with the conversation again soon. All right, thank you. Have a great week. Thank you, Jason. And again today, we've been joined by Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So as a reminder to our clients and their listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO, including the publication which Jason has been making reference to during our conversation this morning of the October UBS Houseview Investment Strategy Guide, as well as the monthly letter authored by Global Chief Investment Officer Mark Hayfley. A title is Back to School. So for clients of UBS, you could of course contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more about the topics covered on today's podcast, or if you would like to receive a copy of the UBS Houseview publication suite directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only.
As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.